Hi, this is Mark Dawson from The Grassroots, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guests today are Don Daneman, Mike Loeskamp, and Pat McLaughlin of The Circle, the band that had two big hits in 1966. Red Rubber Ball, which reached number two, and Turn Down Day, which hit number 16. And in case you're unaware, the circle had a strong connection to the Beatles. They were managed by Brian Epstein. John Lennon gave them the unique spelling of their name, which is C-Y-R-K-L-E. And they opened for the Beatles on the Beatles' 1966 U.S. tour which included the last live concert that they ever played before the rooftop at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, we're going to do what I call a song fest. We'll play their big hits, at least a little bit of them. We'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that in every interview and episode that I do, I feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant somehow. Follow me on this one. My featured song is one that I wrote called To The Zoo. It's a children's fantasy song about a day at the zoo. Why did I pick this? Well, Red Rubber Ball was co-written by Paul Simon, who had a big hit as Simon and Garfunkel with At The Zoo which became my inspiration from my song, To the Zoo. So I thought that it worked. So gentlemen, Don Daneman, Mike Loeskamp, and Pat McLaughlin, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Fantastic. Hey, good to Thank be you. here. All right. You know, here we are. It's like 50, 60 years later or so. And I want to hear about this Beatles connection, because that's something I did not know about when I was doing my research for you guys. How did Brian Epstein become your manager? Okay. In uh, 1964, the Rondells, a band at Lafayette College, put on long-haired Beatle wigs and did a Beatle concert at the school. And that was so successful, that concert, that without going into the details of who heard what, it basically got us to Atlantic City where we played for two summers at the Alibi Bar, the second summer of which, right at the end, when we were going to kind of break up and go our separate ways, Nat White's Beatle manager, Brian Epstein's partner, came in and heard us and said, wow, I think you guys are really pretty good. You know, stay in touch. Maybe we can get something going. Well, we thought, baloney, this is never going to happen. So anyway, we went off. Tom, Marty, and I continued playing sporadically at Lafayette on weekends, 
even though I had graduated and Earl, original keyboard player, went off to medical school, Tom and Marty were still there. And I thought one day, you know, this guy says he knows Brian Epstein. Maybe I should give him a call. I was now working for my dad at the sheet metal factory living in East Chester, New York. Anyway, I called Nat. And he remembered me. I mean, I, you know, wow. Oh, Don, yeah, how are you? Hey, come on down. I'll give you an address and a time. Come come to this address and I'll introduce you to Brian. Okay. So really? Okay. I took a buddy of mine. We go down and um, it's one of these side streets on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Now, what year is this, Don? Is this 66 or before then? Fall of 65. Okay. Is when this would have been. Okay. So Upper East Side of Manhattan, one of those little walk-up buildings. We walk up to the second floor. There is a party. Nat is not there. And we're standing around. We're kind of shy. Nat now walks in. And I go up to him. Oh, yeah, Don. Wow, great. Good to see you. We shake hands. Follow me down. So down we go. And there's a limo parked right outside on the street. And Nat very graciously opens the door and beckons me into the limo. And okay, I go in and he sits me down and son of a gun, I am sitting right across from Brian Epstein. Now, of course, we were huge Beatles fans. So we clearly knew who Brian Epstein was. So I am now gulping and trying to be cool. Now, Nat introduces me. Okay. Now, when I tell this, I have to back up a little bit and you'll understand why I'm going to do this. I have to give you a sense of my level of talent. And my level is, I think I have a pretty good light rock voice. And when I do things that work for me, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good guitar player. I'm not Eric Clapton. Okay. Anyway, but Nat introduces me now. Brian Epstein, I'd like you to meet Don Daneman, one of the finest musicians I know. So once again, <laughs> gulp. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I got to shake Brian's hand and now I'm just trying to be cool. And we did a few exchanges back and forth. Wow, Brian, you know, we're big fans. It's it's so incredible to meet you. And it would be great if we can get something going. A little bit back and forth exchange. And then that... right, hold on, let me stop you for a second. Describe Brian Epstein, his deportment. You know, what was he like at that moment? Oh, he was nicely dressed. He was uh, sitting nicely upright. He looked exactly like what he looked like, you know, whenever you, you see pictures of him. And he was very gentlemanly. As I, my whole experience with Brian is that he really was a gentleman. Soft-spoken. Soft-spoken, yeah. Yeah, and basically, uh, I try and imitate him when I talk about him. And it, it's sort of along the lines of, oh, yes, Don, it, 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 lovely meeting you. Nat has spoken very highly of you in a very soft, gentlemanly way. Nat has spoken very highly of you. And uh, yes, perhaps we can get something going. You know, yes, yes, please do stay in touch with Nat. So, okay, so anyway, that that's kind of what his demeanor was. Look me right in the eye, very good night, you know, gentlemanly good guy. Now, wait a minute. When you were in the car, you're talking to Brian Epstein, Nat Weiss is there with you. What did you think was the goal of this? Was was he going to introduce you? Were you supposed to be signed by Brian? What, what did you think was going to happen? 
not a clue other than here, <laughs> here I am meeting Brian Epstein, you know. I mean, so who knows what could happen? Yeah, in the back of my mind, yeah, maybe we could do a record or something, you know. Did you bring a sandwich or something for him, you know? Nothing. No, no, no. <laughs> no didn't, have, didn't have an exact plan other than I'm going to get to meet Brian Epstein as a member of a band, you know, and the reason I'm meeting him is because Nat liked our band. So I didn't think of it quite as rationally as you're asking me. But in the back of my mind, yeah, wow, maybe, you know, I mean, just the way we sort of said it, well, yes, stay, you know, yes, don't stay in touch and perhaps we can make something happen. All right. I have to ask this also. Sure. The band that you were playing with at the time, were you just a cover band? Were you just doing covers of, you know, whatever was on the radio or did you have original material as well? What was it that attracted Matt Weiss, do you think? Well, other than that, you were a great guitarist and you rivaled Eric Clapton. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we were very methodical in our learning the songs that we covered, including Beatles and Beach Boys stuff and Four Seasons, actually. We really paid attention to the harmony parts. So, I mean, I still can remember Tommy Dawes, bandmate who was sadly passed on. Um, he would come, he came down one day, he comes up to me, he says, Don, I just was all up all night with stereo headphones and I have all the parts to good vibrations. You know, we can do that, you know. So, and all, and the Beatles stuff, we really learned it. We learned it with the right parts and we did it really well. So we could go up and play as a fraternity band, totally cover, but we, we did a really good job on that stuff. And that's what Nat heard. All right, fast forward here. You've met Brian Epstein. So how did he become your manager? Okay, so the next thing was, I now call Tom and Marty, who are still back at Lafayette, and we really got excited. Let's see, what can we do to turn him on? So we set up a makeshift recording studio in my basement, my parents' house in Eastchester, New York. It's a suburb of the city. And we recorded several demos, which were decent. I mean, especially given the limited equipment we had, they were decent demos. And I was able to play them for Nat Weiss on, I'm going to give you a date. And I mean, the listeners of the right age might get a kick out of this. I had an appointment to play them, these demos for Nat Weiss in his apartment in New York. I think the date is November 11th. 1965 and because of some major event that got canceled and we had to reschedule and the event was that was the night the whole east coast had a blackout that we thought we were being invaded by the russians i don't know if you remember that but that was what happened anyway so i uh lugged up a roberts tape recorder which you know this is before little devices that you could play stuff on Lugged this big old tape recorder up, and I'm I was connecting it to his stereo, and I also had a pair of stereo headphones, which I thought, you know, Nat, listen, listen to listen to this on stereo headphones, which were comparatively new at the time, and so he put them on. I hit play, and I saw his eyes light up and head towards the ceiling when he heard the first sounds come out of it. And it was a combination of two things. One is the demos really were pretty good, but he is also hearing stereo headphones for the first time, which is mind blowing when you hear it for the first time. So I thought, ah, 
we got him. You know, he was really hooked. And that got him started to bring us into New York and start booking us and get us record auditions. So that, that's how that whole thing got started. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing, magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous Saturday morning to the darker commentary of Like Never Before and The Ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. Well, listen, I want to get to the, the, the two songs that made you guys, you know, big stars. Right now, underneath me, I'm playing, of course, the first one, Red Rubber Ball. I should have known you did me farewell. There's a lesson to be learned from this, and I learned it very well. Now I know you're not the only starfish in the sea. If I never hear your name again, it's all the same to me. And I think it's gonna be all right. Yeah, the worst is over now. The morning sun is shining like a red rubber ball. Did you know that it was co-written by Paul Simon? How did you get that song? At this point, we were hanging around Greenwich Village. And Tommy Dawes, bandmate Tommy Dawes, heard this on a scratchy 45 record from a fellow named Barry Kornfeld, who had a publishing company with Paul Simon. And Tommy brought it to us, and everybody thought, yeah, cute. Let's try it. Simple as that. You know, that's it. We heard it, and we thought we were looking for material to record. So in other words, Paul Simon wrote the song with somebody from The Seekers, as I understand. Yes, Bruce Woodley from The Seekers. Yeah, it's interesting. So he was looking, or they were looking, through the publishing company to find an outlet for the song. And you guys became the outlet. Yeah. Hey, Robert, you should know, too, that Kornfeld is one of the um, co- uh, There were three men that did Woodstock. That's the same Kornfeld. Aha. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. All right. See, it all comes together. All right, so you had this gigantic hit with um, Red Rubber Ball, and you followed it up in the same year with Turn Down Day. It's much too groovy a summer's day To waste running round in the city But here on the sand I can dream away Or look at the girls in the Turn down day Nothing on my mind 
Tell me a little bit about that. And then I want to get the other guys involved here. Okay. Turndown Day came to us in a pile of demos that our producer, John Simon, had. And this is at Columbia now, of course, where managed by Brian and Nat, Columbia record contract, Red Rubber Ball is already up the charts. And we continually would meet with John Simon in his office, and he would have a stack of 45 records. Like, okay, listen, you know, and we would give each one 10 seconds. You know, you put it on, 10 seconds, no, throw it in the wastebasket. Throw it in the wastebasket. Anyway, when Turn Down Day came on, there was something that just seemed interesting about it. And we thought, okay, let's keep that one aside. And I had an interesting experience in our current revival mode, looking for versions of other versions of Turn Down Day, not us, just to be able to play in an other interview situation. And I came across Jerry Keller's, who is the writer, along with jazz pianist David Bloom, Jerry Keller's original demo of Turn Down Day. And I realized, because I hadn't thought about this in such a long time, we really revised that to make it a hit. His demo was not a hit. And I and as I'm listening to it, I thought, what did we hear in that that you know made us even do that? It, it, it was it was funny to listen to. I can understand because sometimes you're right. The demos, you know, they're they're playing, they're they may not be the right kind of speed, the right feel, whatever. But you guys turned it into a hit. Good for you. Yeah, we straightened out the melodic whole rhyme of it. And yeah, we, I, I'm very proud of what we did to it, especially hearing that demo. All right. So let's fast forward a lot here. I want to get Mike and Pat involved in this conversation because the circle has continued. I mean, you've been going around and around. So the circle has continued. Tell me when you guys got into the band, Mike and Pat, who was in first? I came in first. I was very close to when uh, uh, Don was just speaking about that period. It was like late September or early October of 66. And the reason why was because they had just finished the Beatle tour and the original keyboard player, Earl Pickens, had left the band to go back to medical school. And so uh, they needed a keyboard player. So uh, they called me and asked me to come up and do an audition. I was from Dayton, Ohio at the time. and playing with groups down there. And I went to New York and they sent me a demo tape. I listened to it, went to New York and I went through the songs with them and they asked me to join, so. But you missed the Beatle tour, huh? I know, I missed the Beatle tour, but really, <laughs> you know, just the idea of being with a, a hit group was one of my dreams and, you know, that came about. And so I was able to join them and tour with them. And also I was able to record with them on the uh, Neon album, which was the next album. Right. And uh, so I did get some recording in there as well. So, um, yeah, I did miss the Beatle tour. They should have called me before the Beatle tour. <laughs> <laughs> Earl probably would have had something to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Pat, tell us your story with the band. All right. So uh, we're going to move the, the clock ahead 50 years. And in 2016, Mike and I in, this, in Columbus, Ohio, I have just recruited the year or two before Mike to join. Uh, my band that was pretty successful in the Ohio regional marketplace. 
uh, we started putting Red Rubber Ball and Turn Down Day in our shows and, of course, focusing on Mike in those moments, adding more credibility to our band. It was obvious that the songs were well-received, so I thought, well, I wonder what it would take to see if we could bring the circle back together again. And so I started a lengthy, and I mean seven, eight-month lengthy search to find the surviving members. Mike hadn't seen his bandmates in 50 years. And so... Wait a minute. The circle had completely disbanded by what year? 68. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 68. 68. You all bid yourselves a fond farewell, and nobody got in touch with each other after that? No, I mean, almost they got together occasionally, as I understand it. There were a few um, that the original guys, which included Earl, there were a few times we got together. Yeah. But generally speaking, they had wonderful careers. They all had really successful careers in business. And so they went about doing the rest of their lives. And in 2016, some guy named Pat McLaughlin is trying to run them all down for a possible reunion. All right. I want to move on, though. I, tell me this. You guys are now on the circuit for these 60s bands. What is that like for you? I mean, you're out there playing. Am I correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Don, take take it first. I think you'll like all three of our responses. Well, first off, it, it is a real kick to play with other artists of our era. And, and we, we've gotten really friendly with some of them. I mean, I, 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 and I, I had a, I, I'll give a couple of moments that meant something to me. One is, I think it was might have been one of our first concerts where we actually are finally getting booked after the band got together. And I think it might have been the Vogues that we were all sitting around the table and they started asking me about the Beatle experience. And I found myself going into what I'll call show mode, where I actually stood up and gave some of my Beatles stories. And these are guys that these were big rock stars, you know, they're mm -hmm. looking at me like, yeah, wow, wow. How cool is that? You know, so that was one thing. And then one more thing, and then I'll give it to the other guys. I got a real kick out of when we were playing with Peter Noon, Herman's Hermits. We were, we were on the same show as them. And we were about to start a, our sound check. And the Hermits, without Peter, but the band, four guys, really nice guys, by the way. We've had a good time with them. They're on stage just finishing up, but their music, or their, their instruments are all on. Everything is on, and the mics are still on from the sound check. And I was just bringing my stuff out, and it was them and me. And I just had a thought. I went up to them. I said, hey, guys, I would love to sing Mrs. Brown with you guys. And they said, sure. They went right into it. And on mic, with nobody else hearing, I mean, it was an empty theater, I got to sing Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter with the hermits. That was a kick for me. <laughs> Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Girls as sharp as her are something rare. You know what I always loved about that song? and you guys will know this as musicians, when they recorded that song, the guitar player must have put a handkerchief or something on the bridge of his guitar to muffle the strumming of the guitar. And it was such a distinctive sound. And to me, it made the song. Oh, totally. Yeah, it was. Um, there are some guitars that actually have a little uh, thing that you can flip, and it's like a little pad that actually mute the strings. Right. But I think that whoever recorded that with them, I remember seeing on TV, there was a little white thing sticking out from behind the, you know, the, the bridge of his guitar. 
So I think it was a handkerchief. Oh, That's might have been. Guess. Yeah, might have been. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the two other guys, give me your reactions here. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, on uh, these tours that we've been on, we have made some really good friends, and the camaraderie is great. And uh, it comes to mind mainly as uh, groups like Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, and also uh, Gary Lewis and the Playboys. Had them both on the podcast. Oh, good. Yeah, they're both great groups. We've become, you know, friends. And uh, the, the keyboard player with uh, Gary Puckett, you know, Jamie Hildbolt, uh, we have like a camaraderie in a situation where we communicate with each other all the time. And Mike Gladstone, same thing with, uh, he was with Gary Lewis and his, and so it's really been a thrill just to meet these guys and be able to travel around, share stories, share, you know, and just, we went on a cruise on one situation where we were with them for about a week. And so at least with Gary Puckett's group, and that was a real hoot. We had a lot of really good time with that. Yeah. So I I really look forward to those things. Fabulous. All right, Pat, you go. So um, from my perspective, I've got two. One is selfish. Um, it's very comfortable. It's it's maybe feel very. Um, uh, I guess maybe more self actualization occurs knowing that when we're up and playing with these artists, that they perceive us as not only friends but also good players. And, you know, we're, we're a regional band. It's now on a national level. You don't know how good we are when we get up against these other acts. And it's very meaningful to me to know how much they admire and appreciate and say good things about us. That's very comforting to me as a person. Secondly, and I'm up in the right-hand corner, but these two guys down here, I'm very, very proud that they get a chance to get some of the recognition that they both deserve but hadn't had. I mean, the circle disappears very quietly, and we're able to bring them back onto the, the music scene. And it's fun to listen to Mike and, and Don tell their stories. Uh, people hang on to their every word. And it's really a personal satisfaction to watch these two guys get what they're entitled to get. Well, I'm sure you're right. And, you know, at the time that you guys were hitting the top of the charts, nobody knew that this stuff was going to be lasting as long as it has. And it's just great that it has lasted as long and that the fans are still out there and they love this stuff. We have been speaking here with Don Daneman, Mike Loeskamp, and Pat McLaughlin of The Circle. Guys, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. You are welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Love doing it. Love doing it. It's a thrill that there are still people interested these many years later to hear this stuff. There you go. And it, you know what? They're going to be interested many years from now, too, in my opinion. Anyway, right now, we're going to listen to that song that started off the episode. It's my song called To the Zoo. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. Penguins are having a party at
Thanks for me.